Hi, and welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler. It's been a long time since my last podcast, but sometimes the wait is worth it, and it certainly is for the interview of my guest on this episode, Paul Hood. Paul is an accomplished lawyer, prolific author, public speaker, and teacher who specializes in estate planning, but has also devoted much of his career to the study, design, drafting, and the art of the buy-sell agreement, which obviously extends beyond estate planning into my world of the closely held business entity involving not only family-owned businesses, but any privately held company. Paul makes his home in Louisiana, where he was born and bred into a farming family. He got his undergraduate and law degrees from LSU and an LLM in tax from Georgetown University Law Center. He's the author or co-author of seven books and hundreds of articles on estate planning and business valuation. Paul got on my radar screen when I heard about his new book called Buy-Sell Agreements, The Last Will and Testament for a Business. The topic in Paul's lively style is nowhere near as morbid as the book's title. For my business divorce practice, I know how vitally important it is for business owners to include in their partnership, shareholder, and LLC agreements a workable buy-sell agreement that addresses a variety of trigger events including death, disability, voluntary withdrawal, involuntary withdrawal, etc. Paul's book on buy-sell agreements is written mainly for the business owner, but it's also a great resource for lawyers and other professionals. I liken it to one of those high-end tool chests that has just about every conceivable wrench, plier, screwdriver, file, hammer, nail you need to build yourself a buy-sell agreement that will stand the test of time and keep the business owners out of the hands of business divorce lawyers like me who handle cases involving absent or poorly drafted buy-sell agreements. I hope you enjoy and learn from my interview with Paul. Paul, thanks for joining me on the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thank you for inviting me. Congratulations on the publication of your your latest book, because you've written several of them, called Logically Enough, Buy-Sell Agreements, ominously subtitled The Last Will and Testament for Your Business. What message were you sending with that subtitle? Well, you know, I've seen other people refer to buy-sell agreements as similar to prenuptial agreements. And I don't think the prenuptial agreement analogy is close enough. First of all, in, a, in, a, in most marriages, no prenuptial agreement is required. I, I can't think of too many situations if unrelated people or even related people or co-owners of a business that a buy-sell agreement isn't a necessity. So that's one difference. The second difference is in a prenuptial agreement, quite often... It's simply a separation of rights. In a buy-sell agreement, usually there's going to be a triggering event occur at some point. In a, in a prenup, there may never be. But in a buy-sell agreement, it's a virtual certainty that there will be. And to me, that tr- signals more of a testamentary-type situation than a prenuptial situation. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Paul, before we dig any deeper into your book and, and, and its treatment of buy-sell agreements, could you just tell us a little bit about your background? And I'd love to know sort of how you got interested, involved, developed your expertise in the area of uh, practice area dealing with buy-sell agreements. 
I describe myself as a recovering tax lawyer. After graduating from LSU, and I'm a proud LSU Tiger, I went to LSU Law School. I went on to get a master's degree in tax from Georgetown and settled into practice in the greater New Orleans area. The whole area of buy-sell agreements was something of an intellectual curiosity to me, and it grew out of my own family. When I was a kid, my grandfather was a partner with another fella, founded a very prominent company in Louisiana, in central Louisiana back in the 20s. The, obviously, by the time I'm a kid, we're now into the mid-60s. So the business had been going on for a good while. And What kind of business was it, Paul? The business had a number of different lines, but it started out selling seeds to farmers. And one day, all I remember was Uncle Bobby got fired, and Papa had to retire, and he got, as what we heard, bought out. The business was just sort of part of our family, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. So fast forward to law school. Unfortunately, my grandfather died when I was a junior in law school, so I never got a chance to talk to him about the business. When I was a young lawyer, I was in the Secretary of State's office one day in Baton Rouge to file or pick up some documents, and I had some extra time. I was waiting on them to do something for me, and I decided to pull the corporate charter for our business. The buy-sell language was actually in the public document, and it was a book value buyout, and it was essentially a perpetual call right by the majority shareholder. And even though my grandfather and his partner viewed themselves until the very end as equal partners, my grandfather was the younger of the two and had consented to be the 49% shareholder instead of the 51% shareholder. So the whole time they owned the business, his partner had a right to buy him out at book value. And obviously the business has been going on for over four years and it had substantial goodwill. That prompted me as a young lawyer to study buy-sell agreements because I said, that's really a bad result. I started speaking and writing about them very early in my professional career and would get referrals, and it, it just developed into a professional practice niche that even though I was an estate planning and tax lawyer, primarily an estate planner, that's where I ended up I've probably drafted, reviewed, or, or commented on uh, a minimum of 500 buy-sell agreements. And if the number was actually 1,000, it wouldn't. Well, that, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it sounds like there should have been some you know, bitterness in the Hood family arising out of what happened to your grandpa found himself in. I have great interest in buy-sell agreements, but perhaps from a different perspective than yours. I mean, you're focused on the different types of buy-sell agreements, how to figure out what the best form of buy-sell agreement is for the circumstances of a business owner, what mistakes to avoid. I'm looking at it from the other end, really, where, as a litigator, where cases come to me where you know, either there is no buy-sell agreement or there's a buy-sell agreement 
that is itself the source of it because it was, you know, perhaps poorly drafted or it was unduly, you know, onerous to one side or the other, and they're just not going to take it lying down. I read your book with tremendous interest. It is, it's almost like a user's manual for buy-sell agreements. The thing that struck me was that you've written it not just for professionals. If anything, I think you're writing it for the business owner. Is that right? Yes. The book was primarily written for the business owner, but it is not a do-it-yourself book because, in my opinion, the buy-sell agreement is the most difficult contract in the law to draft. And the reason why is because of the number of options that are available. Not only are the number of potential triggering events numerous, but the responses to those triggering events is equally numerous. One of the reasons why I wrote the book the way I did, I wrote the book to try to help professional advisors help their clients put together good buy-sell agreements. Because in my professional experience, I would estimate that about 90% of the buy-sell agreements that I've seen are deficient. And that may sound high or cynical to you, but it, it's it's not. It, it's just a fact. And I think the reason for it is people don't appreciate how difficult it is to draft a really good buy-sell agreement. You mentioned that there's more than one type of buy-sell agreement. Um, the first is the redemption, where the entity is the purchaser of the interest. The second is the cross-purchase, where the other owners are other individuals, are the purchasers of the interest. And the third is the type that I use most of all, which is the hybrid, which is a combination of redemption and cross-purchase. It is a buy-sell agreement that has different triggering events in it, and in some of those triggering events, the entity may be the purchaser in a redemption-type arrangement. But in other triggering events, the other owners are the purchasers in a like a cross-purchase arrangement. And I would say that in my drafting experience, well over 95% of the buy-sell agreements that I drafted were hybrid. Yeah. What I see in, in my travels is uh, it'll provide that the entity would have the first option. And mm-hmm. then if the corporation or entity doesn't exercise that option, then there's an option that belongs to the other owners. Uh, sure. is, is that the same as the hybrid yeah, you're that, describing? That is, well, in that, what you've just described is actually a hybrid agreement. It's a form of hybrid called a wait-and-see buy-sell agreement. I thought what you were referring to is that there are certain types of trigger events where the option falls to the entity and other types of trigger events where it falls to the other owners. But actually, in many of the buy-sells that I drafted, they were wait-and-see agreements too. Like, for example, the death, you may have the entity be the initial option holder followed by the other owners. If all the interests aren't purchased, then the entity comes back at the end to make sure that all the interests of the decedent are, in fact, purchased. And and I'm speaking of a mandatory-type buy and sell. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I've seen lots of buy-sell agreements and operating agreements or shareholder agreements where it's purely optional. No obligation either at the entity level or the uh, co-ownership level to actually do the, the buyout. That is not something that you would recommend, I gather. It really depends on the party. There is a tool in the book called the buy-sell options grid. It is probably the best professional aid that I ever developed, and I developed it for my own use probably about 25 years ago. It consists of two axes. The vertical axis is a list of, it's, it obviously isn't exhaustive, but it's about 25 different potential triggering events. Now, most buy-sell agreements don't have more than four or five triggering events, but this one offers you a lot of options. The horizontal axis are the responses to the triggering events. These live along a line of a continuum from, for example, no buy and no sell all the way down to no notice of the of a transfer. Along the way, you're going to have, and this is common in a death situation, a mandatory buy and sell. One party might have a call. The owner may have a put and the grid makes it possible on one pay to go through it with a client in an organized fashion and select not only the triggering events, but the response, the desired response to that triggering event on a triggering event by triggering event basis. It is a great drafting aid. Clients love because they can see they love it. They love it because it's on one page that they can visualize, and you literally check the boxes on death. What do you want? I want a mandatory buy and sell. On disability, I want an option, uh, a, a put option, and, and you can go down on an event by event basis. And this is what happens on the occurrence of those triggering events. So, Paul, where can people find this grid? Well, there are a couple of ways to get it. I'm in the process of putting together a resources page on my website, paulhoodservices.com. If anybody wants it before the resources page is live, uh, they can shoot me an email at paul at paulhoodservices.com, and I'll send it to them. It is really a very, very helpful tool and one that clients really, really enjoyed having and decide what to do about them. Paul, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, when I started practicing law in the 80s, at least in New York and most other states, we didn't have an LLC. There was no such thing. They hadn't been enacted yet. And then, of course, in the late 80s and the, you know, first half of the 90s, you know, every state adopted LLC laws. And now LLCs are the king of the hill. And so right. my, my practice, you know, business divorce has really migrated from dealing with disputes between shareholders in closely held corporations to disputes between members of LLCs. Has that affected what you do and how you advise clients with LLCs versus closely held corporations. And what triggered that question in my mind, Paul, was optional versus mandatory buyouts, where if you have shares in a closely 
held corporation, unless there's something that says otherwise in your shareholders agreement, the estate will own those shares and will have voting rights. Whereas with an LLC, unless there's something to the contrary in the operating agreement, right, in most states, if not all states, the death of a member converts that interest into an economic interest, pure economic interest with no voting rights, no say in management. And I would think that would have some impact on the approach that you're taking when you're designing a buy-sell for an operating agreement versus a shareholders agreement for a closely held corporation. Am I, am I making any sense? No, no, you, well, you are. You, you're, you're right on. And yes, that's very important to specify what the rights are of a deceased member of an LLC. I know in my operating agreements, because we adopted the LLC statute in Louisiana in 1991, and remember, the, the LLC sort of came into vogue when the IRS Treasury Department issued the ruling in 88 concerning the Wyoming LLC. Uh, that was really the first. And, of course, the big issue was whether it was taxable as a partnership, federal income tax purpose. When they answered that question, and then obviously when we adopted the check-the-box regulations in 97, people started using LLCs because it was easy to get partnerships treatment, which is what most people wanted, and you didn't have to fool with the Kintner factors and, and, and all this other stuff that we used to worry about all the time. We, we, we didn't have to worry about that anymore. But no, you're right. And I know in my operating agreements, I always, particularly in family situations, always provided that the successor's to a deceased member's interest had protection, including the right to avail themselves of the fiduciary duty that the managers of the company and the majority members of the company owed to members. And I expressly drafted so that those rights also were held by the success, the family successor members. So yeah, you have to coordinate the operating agreement in an LLC with the buy-sell language, whether it's in the operating agreement itself or it's in a separate agreement. What I see probably more often than any other type of call it a buy-sell is the right of first refusal. I see it particularly in real estate holding companies, but I also see it in operating and you know service companies, sales companies. And, and my impression is that rarely, rarely does anyone ever invoke a right of first refusal. In other words, the way they're drafted, pretty useless. And, and I'll say the same thing about another form of buy-sell that I see rarely used is, the, is what we call the, the, the shotgun buy-sell or the Texas shootout buy-sell. On your list of, of, of buy, types of buy-sell agreements, where do those fall? Sort of in the top, the middle, the bottom? Well, first of all, the I discuss right to first refusal, which I would agree with you. I didn't tend to use them very often at all, simply because they... There was no teeth in them. They just, you know, half the time you were worried about whether an offer was a bona fide off and things of this sort. So I did, I, I thought they were litigation breeders. So I, I know I avoided them. I do discuss them in the book. 
and I discuss at least three different types of what you referred to as a shotgun agreement between obviously between two partners or two co-owners or two shareholders there are a number of varieties of it and like i said i I look at three types of those agreements but i didn't in practice i'm not sure i ever draft for shotguns i think you have two issues that seem to dissuade us from invoking them one is no one likes to set the price. <laughs> they, right. want, they, they want the other guy or gal to set the price. And and the, even though they may be 50-50, you know, one may have more access to vital information about the finances of the business, may have a better sense of the value of the business. There's an asymmetry of information mm-hmm. available to the two. So I see these provisions, but I rarely, if ever, see them invoked. And I think that's, I think that's right. And I think it's for the reasons that you, that you laid out. Yeah. What about value? I mean, obviously, the, the, a buy-sell provision has to address pricing. And Oh, and I, I discuss valuation. Um, I've written eight books. The first book that I wrote was with a business appraiser about business valuation. And the reason why I was so and became such an expert in business valuation, even though I was not an appraiser, was because in estate and gift tax planning, valuation is one of what I call the big four issue. And in many in many cases, it's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. The IRS will say it's worth 5x when you put it on the return at x. And in writing that book and a B&A portfolio on business valuation, I took it upon myself to read every single income tax business valuation case back to 1913 when the income tax was enacted, when it was the original board of tax appeals, which ultimately was replaced by the tax. And I have boiled down business valuation into three rules, which I call Hood's Rules of Business Valuation. The first rule is actual value is irrelevant. The second rule is actual value is unknown. And the third rule is probably the most important, and it is perceived defensible value is all about the evidence of value. And in a buy-sell agreement, and I talk about this at length in the book, there are a number of problems that people too often, and it's usually the inexperience of the scrivener with valuation itself. For example, they won't spell out who is to value the end, or they won't spell out what the qualifications of the person to be valuing the interest are. They won't give the appraiser any guidance, like what's the level of value? What's the premise of value? What's the standard of value? Is it fair market value, like it is for tax purposes? Or is it fair value, like it is for state, for state corporate and divorce and, and other type of, of ma- and and those aren't the two only those aren't the only two standards of value in business valuation. Valuation is a very very important thing, and I think it's one of the principal reasons why, in my experience, about ninety percent of buy sell agreements are deficient. I used to, and and, and this is something that I, I I use in cocktail parties when I'm asked questions or on an airplane by the guy sitting next to me. When he tells me that they, they're a partner in a closely held business with someone else, 
I ask them if they have a buy-sell agreement. And usually the answer is yes, but they have no idea what it says. And what I tell them is, listen to what I'm telling you, because this is the best advice you're going to get today. Conduct a fire drill. Pull your buy-sell agreement out and make believe. Go back to being a kid and make believe a triggering event occurs, whether it's your death, whether it's your partner's death, whether it's a divorce. And then take your agreement and walk it all the way through from who has to buy, is anybody forced to sell, who values the interest, how is it valued, how is it paid for, does it have to be in cash, how are the installments determined, is security permitted, if so, what type of security. And I think that what you'll find if you suggest that to clients is if they conduct the fire drill, they're going to realize that one of two things is happen. First is somebody screwed or is going to get screwed royally. Or the other is there is an ambiguity in the agreement. Usually not in the triggering events. People draft those fairly okay. It's in the procedure of the purchase. Like, for example, a very common mistake is giving a business appraiser 30 days to value an interest. After having gone through, and, I, and I'm being conservative about this, more than 500 business valuations in my career, because I was a major purchaser of business valuation services, and I've, I've bought appraisals from the best appraisal firms in this country. And it is just the, the valuation done in 30 days, because usually these are operating companies that are going to require, at least for tax purposes, consideration of a minimum of five years of financials. Revenue ruling 5960 requires five years of financials. In the due diligence, the business appraiser is going to have to conduct a site visit. Most business appraisers wait for all the documents, assemble them, spread them in the way that they spread them, and get everything ready so that when they come on site and interview management, they're able to ask the questions that they need to ask. And the business appraisal process just simply, I mean, it, ha it would be hurried for 30 days, but you'd be surprised the number of times. I. So this is just a, not a well-thought-out or well-considered procedural problem. I'm not sure if, if there are some bulletproof ways of drafting the pricing provisions of the buy-sell. I, I don't come across those because I, I suppose in my line of business, I just see the, you know, the poorly drafted ones. When you talk about mistakes, you know, in strategic mistakes in designing a buy-sell agreement, the one that comes to my mind more than any other is the infamous certificate of value. Right, they 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 schedule have, a. I, that's a, that's one of the ostrich methods. Yeah, and it says that it, it says that you know once a year or every other year they shall revisit and have it reappraised, and of course they never do it. And then twenty years later, now there's a trigger event, a death or whatever, and they have that original Schedule A certificate of value from when the company was born. You know that is almost a surefire way of getting into court. I mean, I've seen cases where the courts say, well, you know, the provision says that if you haven't updated it, you go to whatever the last one was. And the courts will enforce that, you know, fair or unfair. Oh, um, yeah. But There's I, a tax case where the where the tax, where it wasn't the tax court. It was ultimately in a, one of the U.S. Court of Appeals upheld a zero formula value, which 
that's another fool's errand. Try to draft a formula that values a company or an interest in a company. Because I learned in grad school many years ago, you can... If you torture the numbers long enough, they'll confess to whatever you want them to say. I have never, in fact, early in my career, I tried to draft a business valuation formula that would work, but came away dissatisfied every time, finally concluded that it was a fool's errand to even try. But you've got lawyers out there who believe that they can capture the value in a formula that can't be manipulated. And I just personally think they're wrong. So um, so the recipe for a, a, a solid buy-sell agreement is, number one, you're going to have well-defined trigger events, which is something that you say most lawyers, if, if there's any one feature of these buy-sell agreements that most lawyers can, can define adequately, it's the trigger event. Right. Then you have... The pricing, which sounds like a minefield, (laughs) your preferred mode of pricing would entail an appraisal process. Do I hear you correctly? Yes. One of the common problems with appraisal and drafting is what I call the three appraiser approach, which I think is a mistake, where one, one side appoints an appraiser, the other side appoints an appraiser, the two appraisers appraiser, and then they somehow through those three. That is an expensive way to go, Dude, and I never not... recommend going that route. Yeah. What I used to draft more often than anything else is both sides would get an appraisal appraiser and then the appraisers themselves would decide either that one of them would do the work or they would appoint a third appraiser and that one appraisal would govern the transaction and that way you're only paying for one appraisal if you give guidance in the buy sell to the appraiser of what the standard of value premise of value level of value whether they're discounts or not that's what i mean by level of value if you give enough guidance and you get the right qualified appraiser cpas are almost never qualified to value a business unless they are appraisers and have substantial experience and in fact if you know AICPA has the ABV now for P, for 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 CPAs who specialize in business valuation, NACVA has their own. That's another group of CPAs. But your regular run-of-the-mill CPA, like my father was, is wholly unqualified to value of his. But a lot of times, in very unsophisticated situations, you'll see the clients or the lawyer name the client CPA as the appraiser. And that's a mistake. All right. So so it sounds like in most, there's no one size fits all solution. I'm sure you would agree. But in most instances, you would be in favor of a single, you know, getting to a single appraisal. And the, the as you say, the standard of value, premise of value, level of value, et cetera, et cetera, all of that needs to be held out. Otherwise, you have that litigation breeder. And then it sounds like you need to also spell out in detail the process by which all this will happen and the process by which the once the pricing is fixed you know what are the terms of the of the buyout is it going to be cash on the barrel head is there going to be a promissory note payable over x years interest rates security is always essential what if the selling party is a guarantor 
on company debt? Do you, do you have to, you know, is there an indemnity there or do you get that person off the guarantee? You know, there are all these ancillary issues that, that, are, right. that are associated with the sale of an interest. And all of that, it sounds to me Life like... Life insurance policies on the lives of the other owners. Exactly, exactly. That yeah. That's biggie. And then, of course, there's the issue of, depending who the buyer is, I suppose, how is this all going to be funded? Is it going to be... Are there life insurance policies uh, in the event of death that will fund it? That's a very common technique that I, I suspect your book addresses in some detail. It does. And then there's always that that omnipresent issue of tax consequences. Now, I, I've, I know in your book you have at least one chapter, if not more, that pays close attention to the tax issues, the tax consequences of doing various types of buy-sell agreements. We don't have time. Uh, it's just a very detailed, high level of detail that goes into that. But it is all addressed in your book, correct? Yes. And I don't know on if... An entity te- on an entity type by entity type or arrangement and it considers whether life insurance is is used or not used so we look at the s corp rules we look at the partnership rules and we look at the at the corporate the c corporation rules because they're all very different i mean i know this is not necessarily the involved in the drafting of the buy sell but when it comes time that the buy sell is now being implemented i would think that you're whether you're on the buy or the sell side of that you need to go out and get a competent tax advisor yeah. Yeah. Um, another another point that, and I know, of course, my legal practice was in a community property state. So, but I can tell you this: very strong advice. In fact, I never permitted a client, and I just wouldn't draft them. I would not, and I had clients fire me about this. I made spouses be parties to buy sell agreement, even if the client pushed back. So I don't want my spouse involved. And I said, well, guess what? If you want me to do this work for you, they're going to be because I won't do it any other way. In community property, it was easier to justify because the spouse might have had an undivided one half interest in the business, even if they weren't a registered owner of the interest by virtue of their community property right. But I will tell you this, I got out of the practice of law in 2005. Since then, I've had three different clients and I'm not e- and I'm not easy to find, but I've had three different clients seek me out to thank me profusely for forcing them to make their spouses be parties to the agreement instead of just interveners or anything else. Because subsequently in each of those cases there was a divorce and there was a if if you've got the the spouse as a party, it's harder for them to contest it. And usually we draft to protect the interest of the owner spouse and give them rights superior to the non-owner spouse. Yeah, I've had three different people contact me to just just for the purpose of thanking me. When I had, they didn't need any work from me, they didn't need anything else. They just sought me out to thank me. <laughs> well, that forcing that, them to do the right thing. Yeah, that's sort of a a, a tough love approach <laughs> that you have, and it sounds like it's, it's uh, paid off very well. And and so I want to thank you, Paul. This has been a great eye-opener for me. I mean, as for someone who, you know, dwells 
at least some of the time in the land of buy sells. Uh, I learned a lot from your book. Why don't you let uh, listeners know exactly how they can how they can get a hold of your book and any other uh, information that you might be able to offer? Sure, I would refer people to my website, Paul Hood www.paulhoodservices.com. My personal email is paul at paulhoodservices.com. The website has a number of other, it has a blog that discusses various aspects of buy-sell agreements, as well as other aspects of estate planning. It has a number of articles that I've written and published in major publications over the years. And I, I'm, I'm told it's a, it's a good resource for people, uh, not only in buy-sell issues, but in estate planning issues as well. And they can order your book as well off your yes, website? Yes, the website has a link to buy the book. Excellent. And the book's available at Amazon. It, we put it out in hardback and in, in softback, and it's also on Kindle uh, on Amazon. Great. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Paul. Well, it's been my pleasure as well, and I hope that your listeners uh, find it helpful. Thanks for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend or business colleague. As always, if you'd like to learn more about all things business divorce, your best resource is the New York Business Divorce blog at nybusinessdivorce.com. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler.